Welcome to Step Into the Story. Incredible conversations of how the Bible changes lives, changes families, and changes communities across the globe. And here's your host, Phil Tuttle of Walk Through the Bible. Welcome to Step Into the Story, an exciting conversation each time we get together where we explore the intersection of a person's story and God's story. And I think this episode is just kind of the epitome of what we're after in terms of telling just that that account of um, how someone comes to know the Lord and, and also begins to grow in Him. You know, right now as we're recording this, there's a feature film being shot on the grounds of the University of Oxford over in England. Uh, that screenplay was written by Ryan Whitaker, the son of Debbie and Michael W. Smith. So now if you've ever wanted to know, you know what the W in Michael W. Smith stands for. It is indeed for Whitaker. Um, but that, that screenplay, that movie comes from a book. I, I wrote these words down. After I wrote them, I went, that's pretty good. I, I wrote, behind almost every great movie, there's a greater book. And behind every great book, there's a fascinating writer with an amazing story to tell. And the author behind the book, the book is Surprised by Oxford, written by Carolyn Weber. Carolyn, welcome to Step Into the Story. Thank you so much for having me join you today. Well, um, Carolyn, for those of you who may not know her, um, has been a professor of literature at a number of uh, really good schools in in the U.S. and Canada, also um, taught for a time in Oxford, um, author of several books, including Holy is the Day, and um, maybe my all-time favorite title for a, a book, Carolyn, Sex and the City of God. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you know, so a Netflix series meets, you know, an old Christian classic. That was, that was just genius <laughs> there on that title. Um, but Thank you. I never anticipated the quite that kind of title, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, but um, the book that I'm most familiar with, and probably the one we're going to spend most of our time talking about, is the book Surprised by Oxford. And um, I am partway through the book. It's longer than I thought it was going to be. I, my intention was to skim it, and I'm telling you, friends, it's not skimmable because it will pull you in and you will want to read every word of this book. Um, Carolyn, just thank you so much for your extreme quality and just the, the beauty of your writing. Thank you so much for what you put together for all of us. Oh, thank you, Phil. And thank you for your patience in getting through it. It turned out to be longer than I anticipated as well. <laughs> well, kind of life is like that way, you know, sometimes too. At least any individual days in my life can be that way. I um, I cringe a little when I read one of the synopsis of, of your book. Um, it simply says this, Surprised by Oxford is a memoir of a skeptical agnostic who comes to a dynamic personal faith in God during graduate studies in literature at Oxford University. I'm glad I didn't read that before I started reading the book because it, it's kind of like that was just so neat and clean and kind of gave away the ending from the beginning that it just almost almost cheapened it just a tiny bit, what is such a rich story. Um, but I, I read in that, in that same overview, that review, I, I want to run this past you, and you tell me 
how accurate this is. I don't think you probably wrote these words about yourself, but it says, <laughs> Carolyn Weber arrives at Oxford, a feminist from a loving but broken family, suspicious of men and intellectually hostile to all things religious. Carolyn, how accurate is that statement? Well, I, I didn't write that. You're correct. Um, and I think synopsis is tricky with any of our lives, right? Which is why we're meant to be in relationships. Um, but uh, there's, I was, I would have defined myself so as agnostic, uh, you know, by the time I was a teenager into my early college years, only because I couldn't disprove God. And I wasn't necessarily, I, I think, really hostile towards uh, religion per se. I was studying world religion for my master's at the time, but I was very, um, I would say I was very suspicious of uh, a heavenly father, especially because I grew up in a home, uh, quite a broken home with a father who's in and out of my life. So mm. I thought, you know, how was I going to trust a heavenly father if I can't trust an earthly one? Um, I had an, a sense of God. I had I had sort of a an early Catholic childhood um, with Hungarian grandparents where I went to church with them and went to mass in Latin and had some idea of a little bit of biblical scripture and, um, and a very loving maternal grandmother um, but she had passed by the time I was a bit older. So, and I think just with, uh, with what had happened in my childhood growing up with my father here and there gone, and, um, I wasn't, I wasn't really, um, a fan of men in general or trusting men in terms of putting all my eggs in that basket and, and somewhat skeptical, I would say of organized religion. Um, I didn't really know any Christians per se. I, I think I only knew like many North Americans, a mainstream idea of Jesus, you know, from the media right. or television, which is not really always very helpful. Mm, 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 mm. You know, I um, have believed for a long time one of the most loving things that we can do for another person is to help them view God more accurately. And right. um, I think that is probably one of the big takeaways and, and the legacy of your book, Surprised by Oxford. So mm. you had... Um, a lot of pain in your past, as, as you described. And, you know, even in, in you just describing your life and your mindset, um, I think you're talking to an entirely new generation for whom that is not the exception, but is far more the norm. And I, I think, um, you know, your book's been out a few years, but I think it's going to have a huge run again, as it connects with millennials and, and Gen Zers as well, because it's what you described is just pretty typical and common right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I pray so that it does. I mean, I, I've taught students for years and years, and I've always felt an affinity with that. And that was the age at which I converted. But, you know, God's truths are always timeless. Um, the roots lie too deep for frost, you know. And I think that there's a way in which... Um, we just yearn to know how faith is relevant to our lives. We don't always believe it's relevant. And, uh, and so we're always trying to make things hip and relevant instead of, I think, really looking at what is really relevant about faith to our everyday lives, regardless of what the age or time is. Mm. And I think that part remains the same. Mm -hmm. so, so the title, Surprised by Oxford, um, <laughs> what were you expecting when you headed off to Oxford to um, pursue your, your Ph.D. there? Mm, wow. So I was, I was very self-sufficient, very driven, very academically focused. Uh, I was incredibly homesick. 
I guess in a nutshell, you know, coming from an unbelieving home, I would have described my family as uh, loving enough to get by, but broken enough not to deserve God's attention. Wow. And so, um, as I said, my father was in and out of my life. When he was in my life, he was, um, it was really sporadic, sometimes even violent. Um, he had had a, a breakdown following losing his business and some other big difficulties in his life. So sometimes he was uh, loving and charming, and sometimes he was extremely difficult. Um, my mom was left raising us as a single mom, and um, and in a way that created a strong bond among my siblings and I, but I was, you know, growing up working many jobs, helping to support the family, um, that sort of thing. And so I was excited to be studying in England, and it was a scholarship I had won without ever thinking I would have received it, and I wasn't planning to go. Um, and it was the most money I'd ever seen. So that was definitely mm. <laughs> very much needed that. But I was planning to go to focus on my studies. I was actually uh, loosely engaged, sort of informally engaged to my college sweetheart, who was an overt atheist. Um, at the time, and um, and I thought I would study and get my degree and come back uh, for an academic uh, job, and um, you know that I was in control and I could uh, think everything through, and I would, if I worked hard enough, I could succeed at, at whatever I needed. I was the first one to go to college in my family, and um, wasn't at all. I I think deep down, like like all of us, I mean, I really think the thing that defines us as human beings is what C.S. Lewis defined as that sunsook that longing, that infinite longing, um, and that is really for God in our hearts. And uh, I I had that. I was definitely longing for something. I remember feeling that. I remember experiencing that, but I didn't have a concept or a name for it. Um, it was as I arrived at Oxford, thinking that I was going to have this packaged up life and return back to this path, and although I was incredibly homesick, um, my family had left behind, I, I realized as I started studying religions, as I started meeting Christians, as I started having really um, dynamic and interesting conversations, in addition to this time I finally had to think, which I hadn't had before, mm. um, that that longing was really growing and getting more and more of my attention, and it was getting harder to ignore. Mm. Yeah, the longing can be there even if you can't articulate it, and certainly we don't need to be able to put a theologically correct label on it. I mean, the, exactly. mm-hmm. that's part of having the God-shaped void in our lives. We don't know it's a God-shaped void. There's just, there's just got to be more, whatever that is. And I, that's one of the things that I'm enjoying about your book a lot is um, just the process nature of it. I'm, I'm really weary of silver bullets and quick fixes and magic formulas. And, you know, Mm. I think even the last year and a half or so of COVID have shown us just the futility of easy Mm. answers and cliche Christianity. And um, Mm. those of you who are listening to our conversation today, you know, if, if if you are starving for something that's real, and uh, maybe maybe you've even written off God and and his book the Bible. Um, I I think I think this book, Surprised by Oxford, can be an, an on ramp for you to to reconsider some of of your conclusions. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, Carolyn. So <laughs> so you get there, and um, not an easy school academically. I mean, what an honor 
to receive a scholarship and um, and be able to study there. I'm I'm a little jealous as you describe that. But um, <laughs> what what were the beginning? Just just the sense of uh oh, maybe God brought me here for something more than I have scripted for my next year. What were some of the first inklings of that? Oh, it's a wonderful question. And yes, it was a privilege to study there. And it really is a unique and beautiful place because there is the time to think questions and there's community and, you know, um, discussing ideas and walking to pubs and things like that. But I I remember one, one of the first things was I actually met um, a Christian. I didn't know he was a Christian at the time, um, but really someone who was the first person to clearly articulate the gospel to me. And that can sound um, strange, you know, to be in your early 20s and you've never actually really heard the gospel. Uh, but again, I think that, you know, product of our North American culture where I hadn't really clearly ever heard the gospel. And, um, and how he did it was really in an inviting way. So he asked a question. Uh, we were chatting as friends and actually he was talking to me about my homesickness with my mom and offering to help me learn email and things like that. This was a little bit ago. Um, <laughs> And one of his questions to me as we began talking was, who is God to you? And no one had asked me that. Uh, I, you know, and, and then as we got talking, he explained who God was to him. And again, not in this heavy-handed way, or as you said, this silver, silver bullet, you know, tidy way in which, you know, I was expecting a Christian to maybe just spit out scripture and have swirls rise, you know, and, <laughs> and that would be the answer to everything. Um, you know, be care TV evangelist, that was really, I mean, my skepticism. And to have someone actually just say to me very humanly and very um, straightforwardly, it's much like William Drummond famously said, you know, never give anyone a symbol full of the gospel, give them the whole thing. And, um, and he did articulate it to me and it, it bothered me and I was disturbed by it, but I couldn't unhear it. And I think that's one of the powers of the gospel. Once you've hear it, heard it, you can't unhear it mm. and you can't unthink it. And it becomes this big elephant in the room. And even as much as you try to push it away, it starts to sink in. It starts to um, cause a conversation within yourself. And so that was the first thing. I think, again, an example of someone who really hadn't clearly heard the gospel or conversely, maybe I had and my heart had been closed, but in the terms of a really inviting conversational way. And the second thing, again, I'm a perfect example of someone who could go through, you know, 15 years of the public school system and never crack open a Bible. Yep. Um, and uh, I had finally started reading the Bible bits and pieces because I was studying literature. I'd had some professors, you know, recommend it with what I was reading. Um, but I had never really read the whole thing. I didn't understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New or how the prophecies interacted, anything like that. And I finally decided to read the Bible. Um, I, I thought, okay, I'm a trained reader. And these Christians I'm beginning to meet are really irking me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm going to read this Bible and prove them wrong. Um, it's got to be ridiculous. I mean, you know, how, how relevant can it be to us? It's this old-fashioned book, and it's caused all these wars and, you know, whatever. And I snuck into, literally across the street from my college, I snuck into St. Mary's Church, and I started reading the Bible there because I didn't want to buy a Bible. I felt like that was too committal. And, <laughs> That's uh, great. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I wasn't going to spend my book money on that. Not and, a required uh, textbook this semester. No, no, no. And there was a whole bunch of them right across the street. So I would sneak in there and I thought, okay, I'm going to read it from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to read it as a book because I'm a trained reader. And, and I really believe that the Lord uses our strengths as he does our weaknesses. And um, I love 
reading and I love books and I love stories and I love puns and the Lord knows our love language. And honestly, Phil, I started reading it and I remember getting through Genesis, which I had never really just read all the way through. And I thought, oh my, this really makes sense. Mm. <laughs> you know, the post-Lapsarian world makes sense. And I hadn't planned for it to make so much sense. I hadn't planned for, you know, uh, for the way that my heart rung with um, the temptation in the fall and how things are often a choice, you know, the distinction between wisdom and knowledge is the right application of knowledge, right? But sometimes that means you don't act. Um, so many things made so much sense. And God looking for us, uh, not for him after we fell. So many things came out to me, like 3D on the page. And then how um, and then how all of that spun through the revelation. And I, I thought, you can't make any of this stuff up. I mean, you could make up the little stories, but also you couldn't make up the the pattern and the purpose and the entire story all the way through that it would unravel and, and roll all the way from Genesis to Revelation and make such intricate sense that there's so many little points that resonate with each other in prophecy and in meaning and in detail. It was a beautiful work of art. It was the best piece of creative nonfiction I'd ever read, but it was also um, life-changing and uh that, you know, everyone was expecting this powerful king and robed and he came as a carpenter's son. You know, they're expecting a chalice and it's a wooden cup. And I, I just, and I think everything else archetypally began to slip in place where I thought, wow, this is the story of all stories. Wow. Everything else I have been reading has been pointing to this. And there isn't anything I've ever read that doesn't glorify God, even if it's a tragedy or difficult or whatever, it still points to this story. We can't escape the story. Every other story points to it and glorifies him. And that gave me pause. And it was also really inconvenient. Mm. <laughs> I love the way you said that. <laughs> inconvenient in what sense, Carolyn? Well, <laughs> now I had this problem <laughs> um, where you know, the liar, lunatic, or Lord, right? right? Uh, if he's, you know, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, okay, fine. You know, he's an idiot or he's a lunatic or he's right. a liar. But if he is what, who he says he is, oh boy. Yeah. That changes everything. Yeah. Then that demands yeah. a response from me. It demands a response. Yeah. It, yeah. And it's either a leap forward, you know, as many of us sort of define that by like, is it a leap? You can only go so far intellectually and then at one point, do you have to just leave? But also I think it's Sheldon Vanockham, right? Really powerfully in a severe mercy. He said for him, it was not so much a leap forward as it was a falling back. He couldn't deny who Jesus was. So I found what was so interesting in my, you know, as I began to think about prayer, I began to think about all the stories. There's something for everybody in the Bible. And I eventually got to the place where I wrangled with it so much, Phil, intellectually and had all these questions and yet, you know, was working through those that I was praying the prayer, you know, I want faith, but I can't have it. You know, um, yeah. I, you know, help me believe Lord in my disbelief. And there's even that prayer, um, you know, the lowest of all prayers in the Bible, even there's even that prayer. And, um, and that was where I understood what Benachim was saying too, that I couldn't, I couldn't deny who Jesus was. Um, and sometimes, you know, things work by negative. Um, they, I mean, as 
Genesis shows us as much as they work by, by positives and, um, and it changes everything. Uh, it really, when we really look at scripture, it is like, a, you know, putting our finger in a socket. It's in, it's holy for a reason. Um, it is different. Uh, you know, as Bonhoeffer said, you can write a poem about scripture, but it'll always be different from scripture. You know, um, it's its own category and, uh, and its own power and its own living word. And when that actually really starts to hit home, it's almost so frightening. I think that that's why many times we don't want to look it in the eye. Sure. Um, sure. That's why we can't look God in the face, you know, and live. But there is this, if it's real, if it's the real, real, that changes everything. Want to read through the Bible in one year with us? The Daily Walk Bible is designed to guide you through your daily reading of Scripture, taking you from Genesis to Revelation in the span of one year. Each day's reading includes several chapters of Scripture, an overview to give you a bird's-eye view of the day's reading, an insight offering an interesting fact from the day's reading, and My Daily Walk, a short devotion to help you reflect on and apply a specific insight from the day's reading. Every seventh day offers a pause on the journey as you are invited to look back over the readings from the previous week, look up to God, and look ahead to the reading to come. This is the Bible reading plan that will get you through Leviticus. To find out more about the Daily Walk Bible and our other Daily Walk resources, go to walkthrough.org slash dailywalk. That's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U dot O-R-G slash dailywalk. Read through the Bible with us in 2022. Wow. I, I studied my undergrad was at Wheaton College and one of my professors, Dr. Leland Riken, used to say, oh, yeah. read the Bible like it's any other book, and you'll soon discover it's like no other book. Mm-hmm. And I, I, love, I love your testimony of that. You know, that's, that's why we exist as a ministry, walk through the Bible. A lot of people don't bring your um, intellectual background, even just your ability to read and, and analyze. They come to the Bible and the Bible can be intimidating and overwhelming, especially where you started in the, oh, in the first three quarters of it. And you know, Kent just came in just for one moment. He's just, he's just giving me a hug and kiss goodbye while he hits the road. Oh, good. Sure. And it was uh, actually amazing timing. Thanks for that interruption there, Phil, because Kent was an undergraduate at Wheaton as well. You're kidding. And, no. And he knew, uh, no, we know Leland, right? Kent very well. Uh, there's done some endorsements on that for him. He's a delight, but, um, Kent knew him more personally. He'd had him as well. And then he was good friends with Phil, his son. Yeah, sure. Um, they played basketball together. Oh, that's great. Um, but yeah, he has, uh, Dr. Reichen, they both do, but has a wonderful way of really illuminating um, the Bible as a powerful story. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most powerful story there is, a story, you know, the saving story. And, uh, and allowing, though, uh, an invitation to the table to experience it, because it's different for each of us how, how we come to that table. Um, but I think the fact that... Uh, you know, we, we just shamefully underestimate it, not only as Christians, but even as non-Christians. It's just not, uh, you know, sometimes I think scripture seems so worn, um, you know, like Shakespeare, we sort of toss it around and it feels like it's empty and cliched, as you were saying earlier. But when we actually um, immerse ourselves in it or when we actually 
um, sit with it, or even if you just even have it available, you know, not even having it available to people is shocking to me. I had wished, I had actually didn't anticipate, and this is what I tried to express in the book. As I became a believer, I wanted to write about your life after becoming a believer too. And I had so much grief wash in for having missed much of this mm. and for not having had the luxury of rebellion or saying <laughs> grace before meals, you know, or automatically thinking of going to prayer or, um, or going to scripture, whether my heart is heavy or not, whether my prayers are dry or not, um, you know, that God is with us in those things and what Emmanuel really, really means and, um, and the price that was paid for us. And, uh, and there is just the freedom of that reality. And when you are living without that reality, again, it goes back to Augustine, right? It really is two cities, the city of God and the city of men. And which one do you hold your citizenship in? Your passport's going to take you to two very different places. But it also means that the life that you live has an entirely different set of rules and bars and and yet, you know, depth. Um, it is very uh, two very different citizenships. Mm. And um, and yet we don't want to talk about that in our secular environment. We certainly don't want to talk about it in, in uh, our schools or academia. And yet it's the biggest question there is. That's right. That's right. So God, I think, pretty definitely placed um, this person, this relationship uh, along your path. Uh, is, is that the character uh, labeled TDH, Tall, Dark, and Handsome, in, in your book that you're speaking of? Yes, yes. The oh. gentleman who just came in. <laughs> oh, so now we're jumping to the end of the story. Um, I think we know that that relation... And that relationship also um, yielded a lot of fruit through the years. Um, you've now been married. How long have you and Kent been married? Uh, we just had our 24th anniversary, which by grace of God, Phil, we actually had in Oxford together. Oh, that's so cool. That's Never so cool. anticipated that, but the film team flew us there um, to join them with some of the filming of the book. And uh, we were able to actually go back and revisit where he proposed and uh, actually, where I first heard the gospel and um, the, my very first place that I ever um, went to a C.S. Lewis meeting, um, it was very, very meaningful. Oh, I guess. And God's blessed the two of you with a daughter and then twin sons and then another son. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll talk some more about that in a little bit, I hope. But we've once again jumped ahead of ourselves as good <laughs> Westerners who you know love to microwave this whole process. Uh, that God is doing in a crock pot most times. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, you cer certainly can't had a big influence on you with those annoying questions that you didn't have good, easy answers to. Certainly your own intellectual curiosity. I mean, just, just breaking away from campus to go sit and read the story. And there's a there's a great deal of open-mindedness in there. I, I love the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Um, my dad mm -hmm. loved grand openings. He would sometimes drag us. I grew up in the Midwest, and he would drag us to the opening of a new farm and fleet store. So we didn't even buy anything there, but he just liked grand openings. And that story of, of the Jesus on the road to Emmaus, it says he opened their eyes to his mm -hmm. true identity, and he also opened the scriptures to the, to the meaning. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. one of the things the Holy Spirit promised. He, he illumines scripture. He turns the lights on so we can see it. And 
I can just picture you, you know, sitting by by yourself in that church, um, probably losing track of time as as you continue to read. That's really mm-hmm. cool. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's an account in the book. I'm not sure exactly where it is. I I, I think it's in I think it's in the tenth chapter. Um, but but you describe a scene of um, being at a table with some really impressive people from society's point of view and, you know, talking about all sorts of topics from politics to science. And, and the topic of faith came up. And I think as I read it, I was kind of like, well, now there's a surprise at Oxford. Can you kind of summarize? I don't know if that was a, a one-off or if that's something that you got to experience several times, but the, uh, the nature, the direction that discussion took, can you kind of summarize that for us? Mm-hmm. Well, I, what was interesting at Oxford is is there's a high premium placed on conversation. And one of the things I really enjoyed about being there was that no topic was off limits, but especially the God topic. And by no place was any, you know, is any place perfect by no means. Um, but I found this intellectual freedom there to talk about God in ways that we don't talk about God in our North American universities by far. Yes. Um, you know, there seems to be all this political correctness or fear or irrelevancy or whatever. It's actually quite shocking. Um, I mean, I've, I've taught at Jesuit universities, Phil, where there's, you know, uh, where there's silent retreats, or at least there's sort of it's tied into, you know, a notion of wisdom. But in, in the general secular course of things, it's actually, I've been warned not to proselytize. I've been told at some secular institutions don't even teach Paradise Lost, you know, even technical oh, wow. work that. Oh, yeah, it's really crazy, um, or don't have these kind of conversations. What was really refreshing about a place like Oxford is it's, it's built on dialogue. Um, and oftentimes, uh, mealtime is conducive to that. Many colleges, most all the colleges have, um, you know, these formal seatings where you gather for dinner or these high tables or whatnot, and you have, it's, it's really conducive to conversation. So this wasn't a huge anomaly in the sense that lots of my friends, that's also why I was thinking about the faith. Um, people are talking about all sorts of vibrant ideas and there, there's a lot of theology and a lot of um, theologians there. And of course, there's this very rich history, uh, but you'll get a lot of conversation about science and art or science and faith or that sort of thing. But this one had stuck with me um, because of, I, I remember it being really the first time I had been at high tables. And it was Christmas. It was the Advent season. And, and I just remember very distinctly the guests that were there and, uh, and the conversation and, and how, I was, how I was really intrigued for me to hear. Um, I, had, I had carried a stereotype that Christians in particular must not, you know, must not be that smart um, because who can believe in this? Sure. Um, and yet which is a terrible stereotype. It's, you know, awful of anyone, but it's actually entirely untrue, especially when they're the original bibliophiles. <laughs> right. And I, I find my Christian students actually to be far more humanetical thinkers. You know, they're much more used to allegory and levels and layers and things. Um, you can go far deeper with them faster oftentimes than students who are very literal. And I think that's the, one of the big problems of our age is that we're so, we're so literal. Um, but, uh, but you know, as, you start, as soon as you start talking about Christ's word and um, and creation and all of that, there's there is a whole other unseen world at work, and a whole other deeper sense of mystery 
um, that I think the larger world longs for, but we don't address or talk about or even give people an opportunity um, to participate in or even reject. Uh, mm, yeah, so, that's right. you know, we're not even, you know, t- teaching the Bible or Christianity or whatever is even something that's a viable option. Um, so I found that conversation just really dynamic. And, um, and it was one that had stayed with me as a formative one, as was the, the C.S. Lewis, you know, um, society I first went to as well. Some of those things that I, I tried to recall really shaped me in that first year. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, those kind of conversations, people would sometimes, I sometimes get fans that write me and they say, oh, people don't speak like that at Oxford. Um, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Were you they there? Do. Cause I was, yeah. <laughs> They do. I mean, it's it's not an elitist thing necessarily or anything like that. It's just for one, the Brits are hilariously witty as a, as a general group and, and quite fun. There's sort of this culture of wit and wordplay. But there's genuine curiosity. There's genuine openness. So I can sit with, even at this last film project when we were there, I can sit with atheists or agnostics or Christians or Jews or people from all stripes and you can have conversations um, without it being antagonistic at all. Uh, about um, what you believe and why, or you know what point you would you would debate on, and it's it's quite, it's seen as um, you know where life is lived, not something to be um, quelled or you know afraid of. Mm. Uh, if there's one thing our country needs, U.S. and Canada both right now, it's it's a return to that civility and dialogue, that openness to consider ideas. You know, it's a it's so sad right now if you even just identify as a Christian, all of a sudden then that means, oh, I can predict your political party. Oh, I bet I can guess your position on the relationship of faith and science, as we've seen, you know, through through COVID and and any number, I bet I, I can predict where you stand on economics. And it's like, ah, oh, we just we just need to realize that the faith is so much broader than mm-hmm. all of those topics and stop mm-hmm. stop stereotyping that's that's the reason that's a big part of the reason i think there's the disunity and the division even among christians i i was reading um, one of the reviews i thought was a particularly good one was uh, in goodreads and it, it said this it said both christians and non-christians will find something to offend within this mm-hmm. memoir but I found mm-hmm. it to be thoughtful and provocative and, more importantly, grounded in a deep truth and honesty that transcends any of the offenses. You know, the, mm-hmm. for the unbelievers to go, I just, I think you're pushing your agenda of God. I, I guess I understand that more than I understand the pearl-clutching Karen believers who, who will say, <laughs> uh-oh, she she had a a friend who was gay or or you know she just she helped somebody um work work through a very difficult unwanted pregnancy and it it didn't resolve the way i thought it should resolve and um you know i just that troubles me so greatly um i i have a a friend he was really a mentor dr howard hendricks and he sometimes would be criticized for things like that or, or who he would associate with. And one day he just got fed up and he said, oh, I've never felt it necessary for imitating the behavior of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus took mm-hmm. a lot of flack 
for the relationships that he built. And um, mm. I just, mm. your story underlines for me, you know, so you're getting a lot of good intellectual input and, and all of that. Yes, you had a, an open mind to consider things, but it seems to be the relational capital that some believers brought to you um, that really helped. I mean, Jesus is the bridge, but they built many bridges to the ultimate bridge. Can can you talk about that a little bit? I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, absolutely, and please do because your words are really articulate. <laughs> but I I think that I just love how Jesus meets people where they were at. Yes. Um, the gospels are beautiful, and, we, and and you know the story of him walking in a man that you gave such a wonderful, fun story. I mean, we see his sense of fun. We see his sense of mystery. We see a sense of curiosity with people. Yeah, he's messing, um, he's messing with them. You'd think he'd go, hey, guys, don't you recognize me? It's, it's me. And he, instead, he asks questions to find out absolutely. what they knew, and he toys with them a little bit. And that's the key that I say to my students is that Jesus asks questions. He asks them all the time. And so it's invitational. Um, he doesn't walk up to anybody and say, you stink, which he has every right to do, um, you know, except with the Pharisees maybe. But yeah, he, that's you know, all. <laughs> he walks up to everybody and asks, oftentimes it's a question. And I think having curiosity with people instead of a cookie cutter goes a long way. It's very condescending and impersonal. And I think a great stripe of our modern paranoia to assume that, that I believe has been heightened by the, you know, um, the anonymity imposed on us by something like COVID as well to assume that people just fit in these stereotypes instead of ever asking them any questions. Mm -hmm. um, everybody has a life that's like a fingerprint, you know, and, um, and it's believer and non-believer and um, questions show curiosity. They show interest, they show compassion um, and for both the listener and the hearer. And I think, the way that Jesus embodies that those questions to us um, allows us to also examine our own hearts without it being um, dictational or yes. heavy-handed judgment as well. Um, and it's, I mean, it's really an incredible rhetorical strategy, you know, to say, you know, anyone here who hasn't sinned cast the first stone is an incredible rhetorical strategy. But wow, talk about self-reflection, inducing this kind of self-reflection, which is really at the heart of repentance. And um, and it's not necessarily to scourge oneself as it is to open your heart um, to the reality of being loved and, and being forgiven and how then we forgive others. And it's a beautiful cycle and incredibly gracious way that it works. Um, and, uh, and I think that there's this way in which uh, that kind of... Yeah, that kind of curiosity and uh, and personal interest uh, goes a long way um, in how we share the gospel or talk about our faith, but um, but also how we just simply treat each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still a better talker than I am a listener, and thankfully, mm -hmm. my wife Ellen. I mean, I love to I love to just watch her with with anybody because she will ask the right questions and pull their story out of them. And in a mm -hmm. lot of ways, she's the inspiration even behind this podcast because it's 
it's my attempt to grow and become more like my wife of 40 or so years. Um, she's just, she's just modeled that for me now for decades. Well, well we, uh, lovely and it is a gift that kind of holy listening is an immense gift. Holy I've listening. That's a great, that too. that's a great term. So there's so much more to your story. Uh, you know, I don't know why I thought we could do it in a 30 or 40 minute podcast, but it <laughs> took 450 pages or so to describe. With loquacious people. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Uh, uh, you're, you're, uh, you live in the Nashville area now, is that correct? Yes, we just moved out to the Nashville area just a few months ago, actually, Phil. So. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. That's, that's, that's exciting. I know you've got family still in Canada and that's that's tough during the holidays to be trying to balance all that, isn't it? Well, we have families out there and out west, and we have lovely friends here. We feel like we have family here. It's just been an incredible community, and um, and it's been hard. We we were separated from my elderly mom. We've been caring for her for ten years, and she'd been living with us for several years. And uh, because of immigration and COVID, she couldn't join us. So that's been difficult too. But um, but we've, um, we're trusting that the right path will work out for that. That's actually what my husband's ha- managing today mm-hmm. to go up and help her. But, um, but that's, I think, why Surprised by Oxford will always be particularly close to my heart, that particular book, because of really the heart I have for um, unbelieving friends and family and, um, and, I, and, and sort of feeling like you belong to two worlds. And once you do accept Christ and it can be... Um, you know, it can be very, I mean, it's that old question, how can hell be hell with the people I love in it, right? Or yes. um, how do I, uh, how do I express this joy or this, this, uh, you know, my eyes being opened in this way without it being condescending or, or off-putting and yet aching for the people that you love as well as all people to have um, that, that confidence and joy and peace in in uh, our savior and it's um it's 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 a two very difficult worlds to straddle and um and yet you know he gives us many things to live by including his word and his example um to uh to do that in this world but but that was uh yeah probably the largest surprise and one of the reasons the book ended up being longer than i anticipated because Originally, my publisher wanted me to stop with the conversion, but I thought it was really important oh, to no. talk about that's what it's just, like to live afterwards. That's just the first half. The, the good part comes <laughs> after that. And and then, you know, even kind of a follow-up as your memoir continues in, in Sex and the City of God um, take, takes it even farther. I, I love this little bit from your bio, and as we kind of start to land the plane together today, uh, it says, Carolyn loves so many things, but especially books, tea, nature walks in solitude, messes with children, chocolate, animals, and a circle of good friends by a fire. She also loves loyalty, decency, courtesy, integrity, and kindness, and her husband who embodies these things and more. Um, what a What a beautiful tribute to Kent, who God not only used to, you know, to help bring you to faith, uh, but now, you know, enjoying more than two decades together and getting to raise kids together. Uh, this, this final thing, valiant, magnificent, gentle, and just, the four crowns of Narnia are what Carolyn aspires to be. And uh, if your writing is any indication, I think you're well on the way to seeing um that dream, those aspirations become reality. Um, mm-hmm. 
So uh, you're very gracious. But um, we pray. I would just love to be a wise old woman. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The, the old part's easier than the wise part, I think, sometimes. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometime Ellen and I would love to um, sit down by the fire with you and Kent and, and hear more of your story. But, you know, the, for, and us with yours as well. We would love that. For everyone who's listening, you know, it doesn't really matter where you are. You may be struggling with is there really something to this this God? Is this book called the Bible? Is it really all that unique? You may come from a church background. Um, your your parents, you know, may have been people from of faith, but you know, God doesn't have any grandkids. It's personal. It's it's fresh each generation. And you know, I grew up in a church where questions or or doubts. I mean. The ushers were there to call the herd and get rid of the weak ones. You know, they don't have a place here. And um, I was told even when I went away to college that God's given you a great mind, but if you keep asking hard questions, he's going to take away your brain. And um, mm-hmm. thankfully he trans... <laughs> yeah, I know. He Like God can't handle our questions or something. His only thing is he says, be open with your questions, but just be equally open for my answers. Because when you ask, I, I will hear, and I will answer, and how I answer will probably be a surprise. And uh, Carolyn, that's certainly been your story. I think you and I are both continuing to live that now. Um, but, but one final question. What, what do you hope and pray God will accomplish both through the book and, and now the upcoming movie, Surprise Boxer? What's, what's your dream for how God will impact others with the with the book and the movie. Hmm. I I pray that uh, anyone who is questioning would be led to the book, like I was led to wonderful things that really helped me um, draw closer to God and the reality He is. That they would be that the book and or the film would invite them to the table. That it would be a question that they could sit with. Um, it would be um, a door uh, that they would open to, uh, to having a conversation with God, um, just starting wherever they're at, uh, inviting him uh, to have a conversation with him and, uh, and to just be open uh, to the movement and the work that he's doing in their lives, uh, wherever they might be, whether that involves pain or cynicism um, or looking for joy or any of those things uh, that, that it would be um, an invitation to the table for them. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know when you're all, you all are listening to this, but we're recording it in the midst of the holidays. And, you know, this book also gives us a pattern for how we can winsomely represent Jesus um, by knowing when to speak, when to be silent, um, when to... Um, just what truth to lead with when and when just to listen and empathize. And I cannot, I cannot wait to finish the rest of this book, and I cannot recommend it highly enough to all of you. Um, Carolyn, I'd love to just pray with you before I let you go today. And Thank you, Phil. I'd love that. Lord, I just thank you for this conversation. I feel like I've made a new friend, and I mm-hmm. thank you for Carolyn and Kent the way that you used him to draw her to not just himself, but to you, Lord. And now as they multiply this legacy first and foremost with their 
own four kids, but also through the many people that they touch, just through conversations like this and uh, beautifully wordsmithed books and all, all the opportunities um, that, that Carolyn has to teach um, those who are really hungry for answers. Lord, that you would continue to multiply their ministry. Lord, never, never let her settle for the easy path, for the quick answers, for the formulas. Lord, always remember, remind her of the process you used. Just like she read years ago sitting in that church in Genesis, you are the one who chases us down, the, the hounds of heaven that are on our trail. And Lord, I pray that for each of our listeners today, we would be confident that your arm has not been shortened. You are still pursuing people just like that, um, even people just like Carolyn and me. So thank you, Lord, for this conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Phil, so much for this time together and for your words. Oh, man, this was, this was really rich. Um, oh, it is. Just, it's always wonderful to be with brothers and sisters. You're doing such important work. I'm really thrilled that you would invite me to your table, too, Phil, but this is really beautiful, what you're doing. And, and these are the kind of things that spoke to me when I was searching as well. So um, we didn't have podcasts at the time, but we had, you know, these kind of um, guest speakers and talks and things and whatever seeds are planted um, we pray over them thank you for joining us for the step into the story podcast powered by walk through the bible we'd love to hear what you think by giving us a review on itunes or google play also don't miss a single episode by clicking the subscribe button if you'd like more resources to help you explore and live god's word in your daily life visit walkthrough.org that's w-a-l-k T-H-R-U dot O-R-G. Walk through the Bible. Take a walk. Change the world.